Listener Production. Tasmania is now a step closer to having an AFL team with $240 million to go towards building a new stadium in Hobart. The Prime Minister there this morning announcing the funding which will be poured into a precinct with the stadium as its centrepiece. Tassie Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe says it's a huge boost for the state. Truly uh, remarkable uh, moment in time for uh, the wonderful city of Hobart but for all Tasmanians. Well, $65 million has been set aside for upgrades in Launceston. The AFL now needs the support of a third of 18 AFL team presidents. That's expected to happen in the coming days. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer at The Motley Fool, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. And that's exactly the aim of our podcast. We are bringing you conversations with experts, entrepreneurs, and executives to try and understand the very good oil. Now, today's guest is someone who knows a lot about a very controversial topic he is Associate Professor at Onash Business School, I believe. Is that right? Lionel Frost, welcome to The Good Oil. Hi, Scott. That's great. Yeah. I'm going to put my hand up up front. You're, you're based down in, in Victoria. You're an AFL heartland. I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a Sydney sider by, by birth. I did spend uh, three years in Melbourne. I did get my uh, full indoctrination in, in AFL. I'm a, I'm a Swans fan, but I'm not a Swans expert nor an AFL expert. Luckily, you are, and luckily you're an economics expert as well. We're talking specifically, mate, because Tasmania is going to get a brand new AFL stadium, which is going to pave the way for a new AFL team based in Tasmania, which I know has been a very long time coming. And for all the Taswegians listening, congratulations. You're hopefully about to get yourself an AFL team. But Lionel, it's also really, really put some noses out of joint. Is it a good idea for governments to subsidise sports stadiums? It's usually not a good idea for governments to subsidise anything unless there is... There is a special case for it, that the market is not going to work effectively in that area. Um, AFL is an interesting case, um, Scott, as, as you may have observed, NRL as well. Um, down in Australia, we do have a peculiar way of doing things compared to the rest of the world. In Europe, for instance, um, soccer clubs will own their own stadium. You do get a lot of subsidy in America that does impose significant burdens on the local economy. Scott, I, I think if, okay, if we were in America and I was talking about this exact issue and a city government was talking about a, a city government that faced significant problems with homelessness, uh, housing affordability, um, hospital care, If there was a significant issue and a government proposed spending um, huge amounts of money to attract a privately owned franchise, I would be opposed to that. We're talking about something different here. We're talking about uh, a not-for-profit organisation that has uh, in the past developed significant community benefits, uh, provided pathways for uh, for young people to aspire to being part of a sporting organisation. Uh, if we were talking about privately owned clubs, um, we would have a, a, be talking about a stadium that was much smaller, much more expensive, 
Here we're talking about a stadium that will be capable of including a lot of people, uh, even if they don't go to the games. Um, the matches will be there uh, in the city, in the state, and there could be potential for not only housing nearby but public transport, which um, Hobart basically doesn't have. Um, and so I think this is a different case, and I think the case is, for me, um, I'm a footy head, so I would say this. But for me, the case is, the case is I think, is, is quite strong. Very good. Mate, I should ask you, too, who's your footy say? Uh, for my sins, <laughs> I'm a Carlton supporter. Carlton, okay, fair enough, fair enough. When it comes to the dollars and cents, how would we measure, from an economics perspective, the value of something like this? Obviously, it's very easy to say attendance, you know, num- number one, tickets, ticket cost, ticket dollars uh, apportioned over some useful life of the stadium. Uh, there's some financing cost, of course. We won't get too deeply into the algebra here, uh, but it's uh, very hard to do on a podcast. But if you were to go about trying to create a, a, a cost benefit, uh, and let's just focus just on the numbers purely for now, what would you roll in? What would you roll out? And what's your suspicion on what that would deliver for the dollars that are invested by the government? The conventional way would be to look at not just visitors, but how much money they spend, uh, how much longer are they staying. Um, we have just recently had um, the AFL's equivalent of Magic Round, uh, where we played all their games in Adelaide. And all the reports are that that had a significant boost in to tourism and the dollar spend. Um, the argument in overseas studies is that in a place like Hobart, there would be significant tourists coming there anyway. And so if all the hotels are booked out because Collingwood's in town, um, how is that going to be different from a normal weekend in Hobart? These, these are the sort of things that you have to balance out. Um, and the evidence also from American studies is that the effects on local economies of a, a franchise moving to the area are actually quite weak because the athletes tend not to live in town. They, they'll commute. Now, that's not going to happen with an AFL club. I, I very much doubt we're going to have people living in Melbourne or Adelaide <laughs> and um, commuting to, Community for to training. play for <laughs> Tasmania. Um, yeah. I think you're going to get the players and staff Living in Hobart for the uh, while they're while they're playing, so I think that could potentially be quite significant. Uh, the other thing, Scott, is the nature of stadiums themselves have changed. Whereas fifty years ago, the idea of getting a stadium up was to get as many people into the ground as possible uh, with a seat if you're lucky. Now, stadiums worldwide are seen as um, agents of urban renewal. And the area of Hobart that we're looking at, um, fantastic location, but there's a real latent asset that could be activated there in terms of urban renewal, public transport, uh, parkland, et cetera. 
you say seen as Lionel. I, I'm I'm wondering how much of that is genuine, how much of that is the argument put forward, and how much is in between those two those two points. Uh, I, the proponents of this stadium will be arguing every possible angle under the sun to get what they want, which is a an AFL stadium in in Hobart. Um, when you say seen as, how much of that is just? I don't say wishful thinking because I don't I don't mean to be pejorative about it, but we I think we all think look it could be possible those things could happen, which is great. Uh, but obviously, as economists, to some degree, your job is to actually say, well, could be, maybe, possibly aren't aren't good enough, right? We deal with, we deal with numbers here. We don't deal with with hopes and dreams. How much of that is likely to play out in Hobart? I mean, almost by definition, there will be some spin-off benefit just because it's likely because there's going to be people moving through that space. Um, how, how much of that is 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 demonstrable or measurable, do you think, or do you expect, versus that whole idea of like, well, we're going to do it and hopefully there at least are some benefits. So I guess that, you know, that makes it less expensive rather than genuinely that would be good enough to, to be able to put a number behind. The type of scenario planning that goes on just necessarily has to have some assumptions built in. Um, I haven't seen the business case for the Tasmanian team, uh, but I assume they will have plugged in certain assumptions about number of visitors. Uh, you have a stadium with X number of seats. Um, how much is that going to have a multiplier effect throughout the economy if you're getting people coming? Um, how many of those seats will be locals, how many will be interstate visitors, et cetera, et cetera. I think they will, will have had various scenarios uh, to look at those situations constructed. I wonder, mate, as we think about uh, the, the idea of Hobart, one of our, probably is our smallest, I assume, uh, capital city in Australia. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm going to, if I'm going to put the other hat on and say, well, you know, what argument could I make? Is it is it too simplistic of me to assume that because it's a small city, the incremental value of a stadium like that, because of the number of tourists that will arrive, ends up being higher? I mean, if you, if you built a new stadium in Sydney, uh, most of them are locals. They're probably going to go to the football anyway. Uh, the idea of, you know, there's small towns. I've been to I've been to the Birdsville, big red bash. Uh, for those who don't know, Birdsville is in southwest Queensland. And the city goes, or the town goes from 100 people to 10,000 people. So the, the incremental impact or the proportional impact on the economy of an event like that is phenomenally large because it just brings in so many people. Now, that, that's not Hobart, of course, but I do wonder to what extent a stadium might be even more justifiable. Government money might be more justifiable in a smaller city where the incremental inflow of tourists is actually just going to be a larger proportion relative to what it would be in maybe Sydney or Melbourne. I think that's a quite reasonable point, Scott. And also... Um in a smaller city, you're more likely to have sites that are suitable for redevelopment. Um, and if you look at a city like San Francisco, for instance, um, the, the baseball stadium there has been a huge success, but they needed an area of derelict land now that was really close into the, the centre of the city. Now, um, are there places like that in Sydney and Melbourne still left uh, where you could do this sort of thing. I'm not sure there is. So potentially, I think you're right. I, I think if you, if you look at a city, even if it's a small city, a medium-sized city, where there is not a major stadium, uh, putting one there will have a much bigger impact than if you built one in Sydney, for instance, where there's a couple already. But I want to I want to turn our attention to then the team itself because 
this, there's a difference between, or maybe there's not, but I assume there's a difference between a new stadium for an established team. Uh, and in Sydney, for example, the government funded the knocking down of the old Sydney football stadium and then rebuilt the Sydney football stadium for the same teams. <laughs> they will argue there's benefit. We can get into that later. But this one doesn't just bring with it a new stadium, but brings with it a new team for the state. And I wonder to what degree we can or should combine those two when we think about that. And I'm, I mean, obviously there's merchandise sales and other things, but it, you know, a stadium isn't a venue, it's, it's a place to go. The team in theory is a 52-week-a-year commitment. Uh, obviously they're only playing for, for the winter months, but there is some sense that um, it, it, gives, it gives the state another area of uh, economic opportunity, economic growth, uh, a bit more diversification. I know it's one single team, but these things that carry with them you know, significant dollars uh, not to mention the, the very rich players that get down there, the, the teams and the staff. But, you know, the infrastructure that comes with an AFL team is not just the stadium. No, sure. They, they, they will have a training base. They will have headquarters somewhere. I'm, I'm not sure where. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the potential is quite strong because I, I think if we just took a Melbourne-based team and relocated them there, uh, like if we asked Hawthorne or North Melbourne uh, to be based there full-time, if they agreed to that, which they wouldn't, um, I, <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, I think this, this is different in terms of building a pathway and um, the traditions, the infrastructure of local clubs, um, minor leagues, et cetera. Um, that's already there and that groundwork has been done. Whereas if you look at a case like the Gold Coast, uh, they very much had to get in there and create those links to the community um, and it goes for NRL as well. And um, I think Tasmania is a potentially strong market that hasn't been tapped up to the, this point. And if you look at leagues, any sport around the world, there's a history of them not fully tapping their markets conservatively. Um, baseball, for instance, for a long time, uh, an American football, long time was only played in small parts of the country and big markets in the West and the South and Canada weren't tapped uh, that sort of changed around the 1960s, uh, but uh, and, and of course, both in NRL and AFL, uh, moving international markets is, um, has been a deliberate strategy. Uh, so, if we can have a national game, um, it seems it, 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 it seems like we're missing an opportunity if we don't give an opportunity for Tasmania. To be there, I think that makes a lot of sense, mate. And I am mindful, though, of and this is I, this kind of goes outside economics a little bit. So I don't, I don't want to drag you too far outside your your core competence or maybe the areas you might not be comfortable talking about. But I've seen, uh, for example, uh, Peter Volandis, who's the head of the NRL here, the, the chairman of the NRL. Um, and again, apologies for listeners in different states. So we're kind of switching sports here. But my 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 easiest reference is, is rugby league. Every now and again, Peter Volandis threatens to take the the NRL grand final to Melbourne. And I'm I'm no I'm no Machiavellian uh, expert, but I'm I'm tipping this as a case of rattling the cage enough so the New South Wales government will come to the party and say. Well, that's not very politically appropriate. If we lose that, then we're going to be pilloried from whatever, whatever. 
Uh, so Peter Volandis kind of puts his hand out for the, and I, again, I don't mean to be, I'll be funny, but not not direct. Uh, you know, put it for the brown paper bag. Says, look, uh, Premier, you better kind of come to the party here and make sure it's worth our while. Otherwise, you're going to have to answer to your voters as to why there's not a a, a grand final in Sydney or in, or in Tasmania's case, why there's not a Tasmanian AFL team, for example. And so there is this really strange mix made of of well paid players, these sporting codes that are. You know, getting. I'm pretty sure the AFL's rights is more than a billion dollars for the last rights deal that was done. Um, you've got governments giving handouts for for to organisations, otherwise getting that sort of money, building stadiums for them. Again, to your point, some in Europe are different, some in America are different. Um, this was a little bit more like the American example, where it's not exactly moving a team for the subsidy, but it's it's kind of saying, well, we're dangling the carrot. If you if you guys come to the party, you will, you might have a team. How do how do we break? How do we break all that up? How do we break up the, well, they're not-for-profit codes. They're very, 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 um, I'll say high income, not wealthy necessarily because the assets aren't there, but high income codes, massive broadcast rights, politics is mixed in there. The fans all want what the fans want. There's so much going on. How does, how does an economist try to step back and, and and look through that? I guess A, in general, B, how do you do it without kind of falling into those kind of uh, you know, potential traps of, of, of the impact of politics and other things. How, how, do, you, how do you break all that up? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Firstly, about Peter Volandis, um, everyone in Melbourne knows who Peter Volandis is because <laughs> during COVID we were watching with great yeah. interest as to how he handled that and how Gil and McLaughlin That's handled it. Yeah. So, yes, he is. He's, very well known down here. Um, it's interesting <laughs> that um, strategy you're talking about is straight out of the um, the US team owners strategy. We have seen like the Oakland Raiders going to Las Vegas, which um, it, it just staggers the mind if you thought of an equivalent of that in the AFL or NRL. Um, but this sort of um, cage rattling that you're talking about, that goes on a lot in America. Um, I guess the, the, the thing that's different here, as an economist, the logical starting point for me to think about in the market is who owns the teams. And in the case in, with AFL and um, NRL, um, it's owned by people like me, who buy memberships, and it is a not-for-profit organisation. Yes, they generate uh, large surpluses, but those surpluses don't go to any shareholders. Um, I don't get a shareholder dividend for my membership at the end of the year. It gets returned to um, community activities, grassroots, sport, that's it. This this is a fundamental difference between, say, um, English soccer clubs. As I said previously, historically we haven't tapped all our markets and that means that there are lots of people who are excluded from watching. If you think of a typical AFL, what was VFL in those days or NRL, um, or it was pre-NRL, um, Go back to, say, 1970, on a typical weekend, the people watching footy were the ones in a stadium that was pretty ordinary in terms of facilities, but now we're, we're, we're selling, we're getting 95,000 
at the MCG. We're getting um, we're getting sixty thousand at um, in Perth, fifty thousand in Adelaide. Um, these sort of crowds, unheard of. But it's because the facilities are so good. And the other thing, of course, is if you if you're not able to get to the games, um, or if you like me, you like to watch all of them. Um, you do so on TV or, or, or through streaming. And so I think there has been this growth in terms of the number of people uh, in the market. Um, whether it's just the AFL sort of cage rattling with, um, with the federal government, um, I, I'm sure there were lots of negotiations going on, but... Um, yeah, I think that's just part of the normal, the normal process of lobbying that our PM would have to deal with. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mate, a couple of, couple of things I want to roll together here. You mentioned a couple of times opportunity cost. In fact, we started off, you mentioned that almost in the first sentence, and that's, that is, I, I, like I'm an investor by trade and, and across the economy and in investing in particular opportunity cost is, it's not the only thing that matters, but it's not far from it because of the fact, as you say, you only spend your dollar once. You mentioned also grassroots a couple of times, and I guess I'm curious as to whether you've done any work or there is any research out there looking at the the, the places where that money is is spent slash invested. And I guess I'll start. I'll say in sport for now. There's plenty of people saying we should use the money for the stadium in Tassie for you know, homes or, or or other things in Tasmania itself. And there's a there's a decent argument for that, frankly. Um, not not saying it's necessarily a winning argument. There's a there's a very clear argument where there is that opportunity cost question. But have you done any work, or has any work been done in sport generally? I imagine 140 million dollars would pay for a lot of uh, you know uniforms for for the under eights. Uh, it, it would have potentially paid for a lot of suburban grounds to be developed or redeveloped to improved all that kind of stuff. Um, and again, the, the budget is massive, so it's not just a sports dollar versus a sports dollar necessarily, but. If a federal government of any stripe, and again, it's not political, um, is saying, hey, here's $140 million, what do we know, if anything, about where that money can otherwise be spent in sport and, and where we might get a, a greater or lesser bang for the buck? There's no studies, no academic studies I'm aware of, but just um, I, I watch a lot of local footy and just travelling around, look at a, a typical pavilion nowadays will be an inclusive place for, for women and families, whereas it wasn't the case in the past. It was a, it was a men-only, uh, pretty unfriendly, uh, pretty unfriendly place. And you, you read reports, you know, from, from the old days of women having to wait outside until their, until their partners had um, got changed and had a drink and so forth. Um, now you get Co-location of uh, football and netball clubs, which is really big in in AFL, and that has been a, a fantastic success with local government support, I think mostly, um, and some federal government support. Um, pavilions have been rebuilt to provide safer meeting places that are smoke-free with uh, responsible serving of alcohol, things that sort of just we turned a blind eye to in the past. The actual physical infrastructure there is is um, is much better. So in terms of what else the money has been spent on, I suspect uh, equipping grounds, as you said, uniforms, et cetera, et cetera. 
There's still a big issue about um, volunteers and shortages of volunteers because the number of clubs, the number of teams within clubs is growing. Uh, but there were lots of clubs that are struggling to find volunteers. And again, historically, we had far more clubs in the past, but lots of them have merged uh, or folded. But the ones who are still with us, um, I think are still with us because they're pretty well run and they do a good job with the money that's available. I'm curious, mate, in the sense of, I guess that opportunity cost we talk about and the way that can be parlayed. How, 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 I mean, federal government, any any government, any any treasury decision has to be a combination of all of the different components. And I, I will say for myself, I don't, you don't have to agree. Uh, I'm glad we don't live in a world where only the economists get to decide how treasury spends its money because there are far more important things. Maybe I should say that pure economics doesn't drive how we do it because there are some great economists who are broader than just dollars and cents. But there are social outcomes. There are you started by talking a lot about that. So social outcomes, the ability for us all to have that inclusive space you've just talked about, the, the benefits of sport generally are much, much, much broader than just the amount of money outlay and the amount of money that comes back uh, to the federal coffers or even to, to businesses or to uh, to not-for-profits through that process. How do, how should, how do, how should governments think about investments in things like sport? Maybe we can include the arts. I, you know, I have no particular expertise there. I don't know if you do, but um, th- those things that are that are social goods, to use the economics term, there may be a better term for it, and feel free, public goods. Um, how, 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 does, how should policymakers think about that from your perspective? I always tell my students this. Um, it's our job to sort of consider scenarios and what the benefits and costs of both of those are. And at the end of the day, it's politicians and then in turn voters' decisions uh, as to as to what we do. Um, in terms of things like um, investing in parkland, um, you know, Facilities of beaches, uh, community centres, all the all these sort of things. Yeah, I think just thinking in terms of dollars and cents is really it's really hard to put a value on whether someone is feeling included or not. Now, it doesn't mean we just have a a, a magic money tree where we just go out and just spend. Uh, it's important that we do some calculation of what. The benefits and costs are the costs are easy to work out, um, but what we include in those benefits, yeah, I think it's important that we we consider community value as well as just what money's coming in. Can I ask you to follow up then? Because you're right, and I love I love that distinction. That's a really important one, and I'm glad you made it. You know, economists aren't there to tell people what to do, but to inform the conversation. How would an economist go about informing? That conversation. If 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 Treasurer Chalmers was to tap you on the shoulder, Lionel, can you come into the office for for a year or so? Uh, I'm I'm going to frame up the next budget, and I want you to help me think through or, or provide some frameworks for or inform those conversations. How would an economist help a policymaker? And let's assume that policymaker wants to genuinely come up with the right outcomes. Let's put politics and electoral kind of stuff aside for a second. Just say, you know, if you if Treasurer Chalmers said to you, mate, we're going to we're going to make an announcement on whether or not we fund part of the Tassie Stadium. What what should we include to work out whether the amount is right or how much we should allocate to it, whether the project itself is worth doing, given those non-monetary 
benefits. And I suppose there's some non-monetary costs too, right? There's probably well, there's opportunity cost up front plus, plus, you know, I guess environmental questions or social questions or something else or what's being displaced from those sites. But how would an economist frame that? Is it possible to do? I think the first question to the treasurer would be, what are the government's priorities? And if there is a, if there is something government wants to achieve, let's say it, we want to get kids more active. That's our number one priority to reduce the future drain on the um, on the public health bill to um, maximise the value we get from human capital as as kids develop into healthy adults. I mean, if that's a priority, then it's a matter of weighing up, well, what are the, firstly, how much how much have we got to spend and what are the alternate ways that we could uh, do that um, in terms of getting the maximum value? Because if we spend money in an unproductive way, it's, it's gone and there's a potential use, all the other potential uses that we have to give up. So I, I realise I'm talking in fairly general terms, but I think proceed from priorities, work out what you want to do, how you want to, um, what sort of um, values in society you want to encourage. Um, is it your objective to reduce or increase the size of the government contribution to the economy? Uh, those sort of things will govern how we evaluate individual projects. I, I want to just broaden it out for a second. Um, and again, I, I'm mindful that I have a different role to you and I'm probably a little less um, uh, circumspect because I don't have to be maybe or I choose not to be. I, either, I'm, <laughs> either of those might be true. Um, knocking down and rebuilding a stadium strikes me to be a very, very low RI outcome unless that stadium is due to be condemned at some point soon or, or it's a, a public safety risk. Um, the incremental returns for some of those things strike me as relatively modest. Um, I will say particularly in a time when, and this won't go forever, economically we have significant inflation including in building materials and significant challenges around uh, finding enough construction people, for example, adding adding more demand uh, at this point in the economic cycle. Again, maybe that's two years away from three years away from being built. Maybe it's perfect timing. Um, but I, I'm curious as to the... Uh, how, how does <laughs> I try to delicately ask the question of how do you keep how do you not get frustrated by the politics of some of these things? Uh, you, you must see some things happening. I won't ask you to name them to, unless you choose to, where you're walking to. But you must see some things like, oh come on, you know. Uh, I, I think the 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 cost benefit analysis on the Sydney football stadium knockdown rebuild was going to create some stupidly large amount of incremental business somehow for for the state of New South Wales, and I I will happily say um, without fear or favour that that was largely nonsense you know, in an incremental sense because there was already, already a stadium there and realistically you might have put 14 more people in uh, the upper, upper East Deck uh, for a couple of games a year and that would have been about the, the, the best you could do once the construction was done. How does an economist in this area where you do have so much uh, other than economics influencing these decisions, do you just have to learn some sort of equanimity? Uh, do, do, you, do you go home and yell at people? Do you, do you tell your students, don't be like them? How do you kind of, uh, I, guess I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, you're an economist by trade and yet people will use and abuse your profession uh, to make excuses for a whole lot of things that you must shake your head at. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, yeah, whenever I tell people I'm an economist, yeah, I get the shake of the head and... Uh, <laughs> And so, I mean, 
Yeah, it's really interesting that the point you made, Scott, about the stadium. Um, the real value of any sort of construction, as you know, is the dirt. And if if we're just knocking down the stadium to just build a slightly bigger one, um, yeah, it's I, I agree. If the old stadium's obsolete, I think that's a different different kettle of fish. The MCG, for instance, has uh, has been totally rebuilt, except for the boundary fence and the light towers since 1985. So everything you see there right now dates from, uh, no, it's actually 1992, I beg your pardon. Um, the light towers were built in 1985. They're the oldest thing at the stadium. Um, so don't have that at the SCG, but you have pretty much a complete rebuild of the SCG, except for a small, a small part of it. Um, but you still have that traditional plot of land where the history of sports have un unfolded. Um, the real value in, a, in lots of stadiums, I think, is where we take derelict land. Uh, and it becomes the focal point of urban renewal. Uh, and you see that with Arsenal Stadium in London, um, San Francisco's um, baseball park is the other one I'm aware of. The, the, the effect of what was on what was just wasteland um, is, is quite powerful. So I think there's going to be different rates of return, different cost considerations, benefit analysis that, that needs to take place depending on where the, um, where the place is. Um, a lot of economists in their models assume that the land has no features uh, at all and so we just take land out of the equation while in reality land is everything. Uh, but let me, let me finish with our, our favourite last questions. Um, our listeners tend to be big readers, big watchers, big streamers of podcasts and TV shows and all sorts of things. What are you, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment? Oh, what am I, what am I watching? Um, after, somehow we missed it, but my wife and I are seriously into Vikings. Oh, right. A Netflix show. Okay, I will, I will check that one out. Thank you. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, sports and economics. Obviously, that's your your uh, your your core uh, skill set, your core uh, uh, professional interest as well. What other trends are you watching? What have you got your eye on? Things that are changing or happening in the world today? The area I'm, do I'm doing some work on um, um, a couple of things. Um, I, I've written with a team of environmental and economic historians uh, a history of how water has shaped the evolution of Australian cities. So we, we've looked at the provision of water infrastructure. Um, that came out last year. Um, but I'm also doing, some, also doing some work with a former student on housing affordability and how we can measure which groups are experiencing the greatest difficulty uh, meeting, meeting their housing costs. So that's that's ongoing work. So I'm interested in housing uh, as well as environmental history. That is fascinating. How far away is your housing work from being done? I might have to have you back on the podcast. Actually, housing affordability is such an important one right now. Is that something that we we can expect to hear something from soon enough, or is it is it a longer term project? 
Uh, no, we, we've we've just completed. Uh, we, we've published a couple of papers, uh, okay. and also um, just had one completed now on looking at the relationship between a, per, a household in household income and housing affordability. Uh, because with with your household income, you allocate it to housing or other costs. Well, if your income is so low that those other costs mean you've only got a small amount to spend on housing, well, then, yeah, there is a serious issue. Um, so we're looking at whether the issue in the market is lack of supply or whether it's uncertain, low and uncertain income. So, um, that so yeah, that's, that's done and, um, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. We, we may have to. Uh, mate, what advice would you give someone who was uh, maybe going, leaving high school, maybe they're already in uni, thinking about a career in economics, thinking about a career as, a, as an academic? Uh, what advice would you would you give someone who was listening to this going, you know what, I'd like to be like Lionel. Uh, what should I do? Uh, don't be like me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Scott, I, I, I teach first year in a business degree and I tell the students, the first thing I tell them is treat it like a job. Turn up. Do you shift? Uh, as you know, there's things about our jobs and things about living your life that we don't actually enjoy doing, but you just yep. got to yep. do them, and that creates space and creates opportunities for you to do the stuff you actually like. Um, so I tell my students, turn up, put in a shift, do everything we say, and you get paid down the track. You don't get paid by me, but... You, someone will pay you down the track. That is very good advice. And, and, I, like and I think just just do what you're passionate mm. about. Mm. That's unreal. That's great advice, I mate. Mean, let me let me finish off. I, I uh, a lot of people I have on this uh, on this podcast identify as optimists. I'm an optimist by nature. You may or may not be. So I guess my first question is: Are you an optimist in general? Yes. <laughs> okay, and then so what are you optimistic about? Is is the is the follow up? Um, I'm optimistic about. Um, I'm optimistic about being living in Australia and being an Australian and being in a, a liberal democracy where my vote means the same as everyone else's. Um, and I, I love living in a system where we have that say. Um, I'm optimistic about just the creativity of young people and working with kids who are 18 and you can see them develop and you think, well, 10 years' time, they're going to be out there making a contribution. So I, I, I've, got great, um, I've got great faith in humanity and our ability to solve problems uh, on our own and working with each other. I, I love that is one of my favourite answers to that question. Thank you for sharing that. The, the <laughs> system and the uh, the young people will be all right. The kids will be all right, and the uh, we'll, we'll get there. I like that a lot. Uh, Lionel, you've been very, very generous with your time and expertise. Uh, Lionel, you are the associate professor in the Department of Economics and the head of the Monash Business School at the Peninsula Campus. Thank you for joining me for the Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.